Well, God, we uh, come to you this morning thankful that you're on a mission to save the world. And God, that mission has implications for every one of us here this morning. So as we open the word together, just pray that you would speak to each one, God, just what you once said, and help us to hear what you have to say, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas time, I think, is a time for stories. I saw a discussion online the other day about what movies or TV shows that people make it a point to watch every year at Christmas. Now, you probably have your own list. Maybe you'd say something like, it's not Christmas at our house without Heat Miser and Snow Miser. These stories have become part of the Christmas lore of our culture. You know, maybe it's Ralphie dreaming of a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas without shooting his eye out. Or maybe it's the story of George Bailey, whose guardian angel shows him the dramatic results of living a selfless life. Or maybe it's the story of a green fuzzy guy who lives on top of a mountain and hates everything Christmas. These stories, they have meaning for us, not just because of their association with Christmas, but because there's generally a deeper message hidden within them. Well, Jesus was a master storyteller, and he often told stories to to illustrate points about the kingdom of God, stories that incorporated situations and circumstances from everyday life. And these stories are called parables. Jesus used parables to help his listeners understand spiritual truths that might be hard to explain or understand. Now, a parable typically has layers to it. In other words, what seems like a simple story has a deeper message buried inside. You have to kind of dig beneath the surface to find that message. So today, we're going to look at a particular parable that Jesus told. It's found in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. You can go there on your device or pull out the study guide from your worship folder. It's on there, and you can find it there. And follow along as I read it to you, Matthew 21. I'm going to start in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now you might be thinking, as Pastor Joe lost his mind, what does this parable have to do with Christmas? Well, trust me, we'll get there. This situation Jesus describes here will be very familiar to listeners in first century Palestine, but it's not so familiar to us today, so let's unpack the details of the story. Verse 33, it says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Now, large farming estates owned by either foreigners or wealthy Jews, very common in Palestine at that time. So this landowner goes to great trouble and expense to establish a vineyard. It says that he planted it, built a wall around it, probably a stone wall, dug a wine press and built a watchtower. And they didn't have backhoes and tractors and stuff like that. It all had to be done manually. Now, I know some of you here today are business owners. 
When the IT consulting company I owned opened its office, it took a lot of preparation. We had to find a suitable space in an acceptable location with decent rent. You had to get office furniture and supplies and computers and printers and network infrastructure. We spent over $50,000 to do that, and that was more than 15 years ago. A lot goes into setting up a business both then and now and, and back then. Then in verse 34 it says, Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now the landowners in that day frequently rented their vineyards to local farmers so they could attend to other interests. In these situations, there would be a sharecropping agreement between the owner and the tenant farmers. The proper time the owner would expect to receive his share could be as much as half. At the time of the harvest, a representative of the owner, his servant, comes to collect the owner's share. Now, it's not like the tenants could like send the owner a check or wire him the profits. A servant had to come there physically to collect the owner's share. Then in verse 35, it says, The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. So the owner sends servants to collect his share, but the tenants won't pay up, and they mistreat the servants. Now, notice two things about this. First, notice the brazen actions of the tenants. They entered this agreement with the owner, and then they welched on it. They didn't just refuse to pay their share, they went as far as killing at least one of the servants. Now, in that culture, the messenger was to be treated the way you'd treat the sender. So the treatment of the servants shows a blatant lack of respect for the owner. The owner would know the tenants hated him. Now, the listeners at that time, they knew some landlords that day actually had hit squads to take out troublesome tenant farmers. And it was also common knowledge the state would always side with the landlord no, no matter how bad they were. So in a case of obvious wrong like this, what Jesus describes here, the murderers of a servant like this might be executed or enslaved. So these tenants clearly were not worried about the repercussions of their actions. But second, notice the patience of the owner. The owner sends at least seven servants. So how did I get that? Well, it says he sent three, right? One got beaten, one got stoned, one got killed. Then it says he sent other servants more than before. So simple math, that means he sent at least four more servants, perhaps more than that. Now, despite the reprehensible actions of the servants or the tenants and how they treated the owner's servants, let alone reneging on the sharecropping agreement, the owner still gives the tenants lots of chances. Then in verse 37, it says, Last of all, he sent to his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. In the parallel passage in Mark 12, verse 6, it says it this way. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Well, not so much. Seems like these rotten tenants saved their worst for the son. Then in verse 38, it says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jewish law provided that a piece of property, unclaimed, by an heir, would be declared ownerless, and others could claim it. So the tenants must have assumed the owner had died, the son had come as his heir to claim the property. 
if the owner and the son were both dead, then they could take the lamb for themselves. Kind of like that old saying, possessions nine-tenths of the law. These tenants weren't content just working the land for a share of the crop. They wanted to be the owners themselves. So they cooked up this plan to murder the son and take the vineyard. Okay, so we've talked through the top layer of the parable. But this isn't just a story about agricultural problems in the Middle East 20 centuries ago. We need to dig beneath the surface of the story to glean its spiritual significance. What was Jesus really saying to his listeners? Well, first, the vineyard represents Israel. Now, how do I get that? Well, this parable is very similar to the song of the vineyard. It's found in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Verse 2 says this. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. You see the similarities in that passage to, the, to what Jesus is saying here in the parable? And this Old Testament passage would have been very familiar to the religious leaders Jesus was talking to. In this Isaiah passage, the vineyard represents Israel, and that's a metaphor his listeners would definitely have picked up on. Now, the landowner represents God, and more specifically, God the Father. God created the nation of Israel. He painstakingly provided it with all the things it needed to thrive. And God might be away from Israel, but he still takes an active interest in his vineyard. The tenant farmers represent the Jewish religious leaders of that time. Now, this parable was essentially saying these leaders were tenants of God's nation of Israel entrusted with caring for it, but they're abusing the privilege. And since they were among the listeners to this parable, and it didn't paint them in the most flattering light, they didn't care for it. But we'll see that in a bit. The landowner's servants represent God's prophets. Now Jesus is saying that God patiently sent numerous prophets over the centuries to convey his message. But Israel, and in particular its leaders, often mistreated them. We can point to cases of prophets who were beaten, like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26 and 38, or Zechariah who was stoned in 2 Chronicles 24. Or killed outright like John the Baptist in, in Matthew chapter 14. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus is bringing a stinging indictment against the religious leadership for their disrespect of God's messengers, and by implication, for God himself. Now finally, the landowner's son represents Jesus. Maybe it's easier for us to pick up on that because we have the benefit of history. Jesus was telling this story not about what had been done to him, but what was going to be done to him because it hadn't happened yet. So this parable is saying that God had patiently sent messengers to Israel throughout history messengers they have ignored or abused, and ultimately, God would send his own son. Surely, they will respect my son, God is saying. But instead, 
Jesus would be rejected and killed. And some of those hearing this story would have a direct hand in that. So how did the listeners, the members of the Jewish religious establishment, respond to this parable? Well, listen to verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held he was a prophet. So the religious leaders understood Jesus wasn't just talking about some bad farm tenants. They knew he was describing them and not in a positive way. He was saying they respected God and his prophets. He was saying that they had failed to spiritually guide the Jewish people. He was saying they would ultimately kill God's son. He was saying that he himself was God's son. That bunch didn't want to hear any of that. So the leaders, they're angry enough, they wanted to arrest Jesus on the spot, but they were afraid to do it because of his popularity with the people. Now see, to me, that just proves that what he's saying is right. <laughs> they had no problem arresting or mistreating Jesus because they didn't believe in him. They only held back because they're afraid of the backlash from the people. They cared more about how they looked politically than what God thought about their attitudes and actions. So that brings us to the question. Jesus, as he often does, invites his listeners to respond to this parable by asking them a question in verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now I ask you, how would you respond to that question? They refuse to give the landowner his rightful share of the crop. They beat, stoned, and killed his servants. And on top of that, they killed the owner's son. If you were the owner, how would you deal with these no-good tenants? Well, the listeners answered the way I think most of us would in verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, the irony here is, the religious leaders were saying this against themselves since they were the ones being cast in the role of the evil tenants. We'll see that in a bit. So given the details of this story, I want us to consider three things this parable is saying to us right here today. First, God doesn't think like we do. Now I suppose it's human nature to think that God sees things the way we do, right? To expect God to act or react like we would. But God is incomprehensibly kind to his enemies. No one would expect the most benevolent landowner to remain that way indefinitely. The owner in the parable is almost foolish in his patience. In that culture, honor would demand that he retaliate. But Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when we respond that if we were the owner in the parable, we'd make sure those crummy tenants got what they had coming to them. That's not how God thinks. Now the word translated higher here means to soar or lofty. It's saying that God's ways are noble. Soaring as high above ours as 
the heavens are above the earth. Now, how high, how high is that? Well, it's infinite, right? God's ways are so far above ours, there's just no comparison. So after sending messenger after messenger that was ignored or rejected, rather than reacting out of anger or vengeance, God showed his love and patience toward humanity time and time again. John read earlier from 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. God is love. Love personified. We talked about that last week. God demonstrated that love by sending his son into the world to give us life. Second, Jesus is the rejected cornerstone. Now, after the religious leaders respond with what they would do to the rebellious tenants, Jesus counters their answer in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now Jesus zings them a bit, hits them with a little sarcasm when he says, Have you never read the scriptures? These are the religious leaders of Israel. They prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures. Then he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. So why does he quote this Old Testament passage about a cornerstone? Well, he's making an analogy between Psalm 118 and the parable that he just told. In this case, the builders represent the religious leaders, and the stone is Jesus himself. He's saying that the stone that the builders treat as garbage to be thrown away will become the very cornerstone, the one on which the entire building rests. Even though mankind would reject Jesus, God sees it quite differently, elevating Jesus to the most important place, the one who nobody gave respect, just like the owner's son in the story, is in fact the most worthy of respect. Then in verse 43, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, Jesus alludes here to the fact that while the Jews would reject him, the Gentiles would embrace his message in the years to come. But, don't miss this. Jesus is always saying to these leaders, personally, they would reject him in his message, and thus they themselves would be left out of God's kingdom. Then what about this falling and being crushed stuff? Well, those who fall on the stone, that means somebody who would stumble over it, trip over it. It's talking about anyone who would reject the message of Jesus. It says that those people will be broken to pieces and crushed. God will ultimately judge those who reject the Son whether that was the original hearers 2,000 years ago or us hearing it here today. Those are some pretty tough words. But there's hope in this story as well. Which brings me to my last point. 
God sent his son to save the world. Jesus, the son of God, coming into the world as God's messenger because of God's amazing love. That's the message of Christmas. We celebrate the arrival of the son on earth. Mary and Joseph and the inn, the manger, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men. It's an unlikely entrance for the king of the universe. But what was the message that Jesus was sent to deliver? Well, it's really summed up in John 3.16, the verse we've been looking at the last two weekends. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, do you see the parallels between John 3.16 and the parable that Jesus told? Now, understand this. When John 3.16 says God loved the world, it doesn't mean he's green. It doesn't mean the earth itself. It means the people of the world. Because of God's extravagant love for people, he sent his son. And it says that those who believe in Jesus won't perish, but will have eternal life. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What exactly are we supposed to believe? Well, to answer that, we're going to take a step back. You've got to understand the big picture of why Jesus came to earth. See, we have to understand mankind's sin problem. Back in the beginning, God created the world, and it was perfect. Adam and Eve, the first humans, they lived in a perfect world. They had, they had direct fellowship with God himself. And God is perfect. He's holy. Everything about his character is good and right. As Pastor Steve said two weeks ago, God defines rightness. He can't tolerate wrong. But mankind is not perfect. We are not holy. We do wrong things all the time. God calls those things sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just slip up. Sin is rebellion against God. It's going against God's desires and plans. And every one of us since has sinned. None of us are perfect. Because God can't tolerate sin, it creates a separation between us and God. But God still longed for a relationship with his creations in spite of their sin. So he went on a mission, a mission to save the world. Throughout history, God has been gathering a family of people who love him and want a relationship with him. That's why he's been so patient. He wants everyone to get in on it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Son of God himself was born as a human baby that first Christmas. But since Jesus was both fully God and fully man, He lived a perfect human life, the life none of us could live. See, don't miss this. The parable, the point of the parable isn't the arrival of the son. It's really about his death. The ultimate indignity of the story is that the tenants kill the owner's son. The builders reject the very cornerstone. 
The religious leaders, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't think he was who he said he was. But because the people did, they saw Jesus as a threat. They didn't want to lose their status or power. So they lobbied the Roman authorities to execute Jesus using the most cruel and torturous method they had in that day, being nailed to a cross. Jesus wasn't killed for his own crimes. He had no crimes. So why did he die? Well, listen to the end of that passage that John read a a little while ago. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus died as our substitute. He willingly accepted the punishment for our sins, the only punishment a just and holy God can accept, death. His death atoned for us. In other words, his death paid the price for our sins. The death of the perfect Son of God credited to your account and mine. But this story doesn't end with Jesus' death. The ultimate joy of Christmas didn't come in Bethlehem in a stable. It came 33 years later when Jesus rose victorious from the dead. It's what Jesus was saying by quoting Psalm 118. He was predicting his resurrection from the dead, his triumph over death and the grave. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So there you have it. Believe in Jesus. Believe his good news, the gospel. Believe that he came to earth as a baby, lived a perfect human life, that he died as your substitute to pay for your sins, that he rose back to life, And that even at this moment, he's alive, seated next to God the Father in heaven. So given all this, I have a question for you today. And it's really the most important question all of us have to answer in this life. How are you going to treat the Son? You're going to invite him into your vineyard? And give him his due? Will you believe in his gospel message? Or are you going to reject him? Throw him out? Go away. I'm running this vineyard. John 3.16 makes it clear that we all must choose how we will treat the Son. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. If you believe, if you accept the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, you'll have life beyond this one forever. But what if you choose not to believe? Well, as we talked about two weeks ago, when the Bible says you perish, it doesn't mean you just die and that's the end. It means eternal death. Not just a physical death, but an eternal spiritual death in hell. Regardless of your choice, life or death, it's eternal. Believe in Jesus, choose life, you'll spend eternity with God. But there's a real literal hell, despite the fact our culture wants wants to tell you otherwise. It's just a fairy tale. Choose not to believe, reject Jesus, and you'll spend eternity there, separated from God forever. So how do you make the choice? Romans 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved. Saved from an eternal 
death in hell. Believe, choose life, accept God's Christmas gift, and you will spend forever with God the Father, whose love was demonstrated for you by sending the Son. And with Jesus, who paid the ultimate price tag, death in your place and mine. I urge you to make this choice, to believe in Jesus today. Now, maybe you're here saying, well, Pastor Joe, I do believe in Jesus. I already accepted his gift. Let me ask you, how are you treating the son these days? Are you respecting him? Are you living a life sold out to him? A life worthy of the sacrifice that he made for you? Are you telling others what he did for you and for them? Are you throwing him out of your vineyard, disrespecting his message? Are you keeping all the fruit for yourself? If that's you, I can't think of any better gift this Christmas to divide today, right now. You're going to run back to Jesus. You're going to make room in your heart for him. You're going to live a life worthy of his love and sacrifice for you. Don't be like those miserable tenants. Don't be like the misguided builders. Don't reject Jesus. Don't throw him out of your vineyard. Don't stumble over the rejected stone. Embrace God's message sent by his dearest messenger, his son Jesus. The very stone which the builders threw away is the cornerstone, the one on which everything rests. This is God's doing. May it be marvelous in your eyes this Christmas. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody moving around. I want to make sure that we're going to do some business with God here this morning. With nobody looking around. If you've never believed in the Son, but you'd like to today, I want to pray for you. Will you raise your hand so that I can see it? Right now, looking around. Thank you. Okay. If you've already believed in Jesus, but you know, like those religious leaders knew, if you know you're not treating the Son like you ought to be saved, I want to pray for you as well. Would you raise your hand so I could see it? Wow, hands all over the room. Thank you for your honesty. Okay, before I pray, our prayer partners are coming right now. There are specially trained folks who would love to walk you through believing in Jesus if you need that. Or if you already believe in him today, when we start singing, come talk to one of them. You know, if you've believed in Jesus and you need to return to the Son, don't just sit there and know that in your heart. That's good, but take the next step. Come speak it out. Come talk to one of the prayer partners because when you speak that out, it just defeats the whole thing. I'm going to pray that you just have the courage to do that today. God, thank you for your incredible kindness and your love that you have been on a mission to save the world. And so, God, for those folks that are here today that have not believed the message, God, I pray that they would know for a fact that they have believed your message and they 
are headed to an eternity with you, God, that they would know before they leave this room for sure. And God, for those of us that are just, well, we're not treating you the way we ought to these days. God, I pray that you would, I pray that you'd give them the courage to step out and just tell somebody about it, God. Take the teeth right out of that thing by speaking it out, saying it. Oh, the enemy wants us to keep that hidden, wants us to stuff that down. No, God, may we have freedom from that thing today. So God, in these moments as we worship together, you work in every heart like only you can. Thank you for what you're doing, even right at this moment. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to prepare room in our hearts for Jesus today.